Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Nightmares, they attack when you can't see it coming. Sneaky buggers. Now, let's dim the lights and not fall asleep. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Kit Kat Club. Come for the show, but stay for the candy at the Kit Kat Club. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are uh, filmmakers and a bunch of other things. We we have a lot of experience behind the camera, in front of the camera. Um, the whole process of making anything for video is an arduous one. It takes a lot of, uh, you know, if you're, depending on what you're doing, documentaries even take a lot of pre-visualizing and figuring out what you want to do ahead of time. Um, let alone something, you know, as specific as a, as a movie or a short film. There's so much that goes into it and we love to watch a film, pull it apart and see what's making it work. What are the things happening underneath the hood, uh, to give you an emotion, to give you a feeling, uh, to give you dread, uh, all those things kind of combine into the experience, right? When you show up to a movie theater, uh, it's for the experience, whether that's to feel a specific emotion like fear in a horror film um, or to feel, you know, relief, you know, that uh, things worked out the way you wanted them to. Um, or sometimes you maybe you just want to punch in the gut. Maybe it's just a good reminder that you're alive. All the things are possible in storytelling. And uh, that's that's what we do. We like to see why do these stories work the way they do. Yeah. Catharsis, you know, themes and stuff i don't know i forgot where i was going so so when you go to a movie what do you look for like what's the first thing i guess that you that you notice or or maybe in in post film maybe think about when you leave a, a theater i think the first thing i i look for whenever i'm watching a film is authenticity man that was a fast answer yeah, yeah that's like, awesome I'm really big on authenticity and it, it pulls me out pretty quick whenever I think that there's nothing that the actors are acting, that yeah. the camera work um, is there to wow you. And it just makes me think of everything that isn't the story. <laughs> I, uh, whereas finding something, I was listening to an interview actually um, between William Friedkin who did uh, the, the exorcist and Darren Aronofsky. Um, and it was interesting listening because Aronofsky was talking about mother and he was like, yeah, we rehearsed this thing for four months. And then we got on set and Friedkin was like, Whoa, hold the phone. Like for the exorcist, we rehearsed for like four weeks and then we got on set and I felt like everyone was being very rote and they, they, all the freshness was zapped out of it. How the heck do you rehearse for four months and get something fresh out of it? And Aronofsky was like, well, here's the thing. I had Jennifer Lawrence and during four months of rehearsal, she gave me absolutely nothing. <laughs> she did not demonstrate character at all. Uh, and she saved it so that once uh, we had the blocking down all the movements, like then we got to, to filming and suddenly it all came to life that she, she, she held back. And did he know that? Did she tell him that? He suspected, but I think he was just trusting her. He was like, oh, man, I, I think he was a little worried. <laughs> it, actually, I think he said that. He was like, I was terrified. <laughs> uh, but I also know it's Jennifer Lawrence. Like, she's a known entity here. And I think they were even dating at the time. And so maybe there's just a level of trust that they had built 
I don't know. That's I, I am terrible about understanding the love lives of celebrities because I frankly don't give a shit. And so at some point they were dating, I guess. So yeah, I, I find that pretty quickly. And whenever I see like on set, my own actors doing that, I get pulled out of the scene. I'm like, I can't hear the story through all of your perfectly positioned words. <laughs> like I, I wanted a little bit messier. And so when I see that on screen, uh, it just screams, you know, uh, we, we didn't find it. We didn't find it. And I stopped trusting the story. Now it can work whenever it's something so heightened that it's its own thing, right? Wes Anderson, that's clearly all super rehearsed. Aaron Sorkin films are all super rehearsed, but they're also carrying their own kind of tone. Um, and that's why it works in those universes. And so, you know, add an asterisk, everything is context dependent in, in my worldview. Uh, and so walking into a film, I'm like, oh man. And then walking out of the film, I think it is still a little bit of the authenticity, like what, what am I feeling? What did, what did it leave me with? If it didn't leave me with a feeling, uh, I'm probably, you're, I'm never going to tell you about it. Like, whereas my favorite films, the stuff I walk out of that uh, really leave an imprint on me are stuff that is so small and it's so intimate. The stakes are just, you know, minuscule. And because the characters care about this little thing, um, it makes me care. Uh, like Petite Maman was my favorite film from last year. But if you go into that thinking that this is the best movie of the year, you'll probably be disappointed because <laughs> it's it, the stakes are so, you know, invisible. You know, it's it's really not about that. It's about humans uh, and connecting. And and it's so authentic. Like the it's just little girls on screen. Like, I don't even know. They might be five years old, you know, and getting a five-year-old to not pretend that they're pretending uh it's it's magic it takes real work uh let alone to let them be on screen for 85 straight minutes or whatever 75 straight minutes without ever indicating that this is a performance and communicating an entire through line an entire story it just i melt away and i'm suddenly i'm in this you know universe with these with these kids and it's just amazing it's that that's the invisibility I think is, is what, you know, I need to be persuaded that I'm no longer watching a, a filmmaker at work. That's uh, I think that's the best way to put it. I'm looking for all the flags. And if, if I don't find them, I can't help, but just what's happening. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> and then, mm -hmm. then I'm there. Yeah. What about you? Do you have anything? I was going to say the invisibility of, mm. of all the work that went into it. It's If it looks easy, as in like, well, not easy. If, if I just see, see the story, you know, like I, I feel it, like you said, and everything else melts away. I don't see the camera work. I don't see the acting. I don't see the actors. Right. I mean, so the ones who win best actor are the ones where, you know, they disappear on screen, the actor itself. So I don't see Heath Ledger anymore. I see the Joker. I don't see Brendan Fraser, you know, like I just, I see the character and and it's that it's that when they disappear, the the less I see everyone else, the more I just see that rectangle and whatever's happening in it. That's that's what I register with. Cool. So interesting. Great, fast answer there. Yeah. thanks. Yeah. A lot of everything I, I'm always interested in is all about real portrayal. Like I hate in my own work over framing things where everything has this perfect view of X. Like I like a little bit more obfuscation where it almost feels like a documentary. And the more I can make you feel like you're watching a documentary, 
the more I think I won, <laughs> the more I think yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kicking your ass. I always think about the bear. There's this uh, monologue, at the, the Hulu show for listeners not aware. Uh, there's this Hulu show about a chef and the, the show is called The Bear. And the chef is uh, given this monologue about uh, how much pride he takes in cooking for people. Um, and he almost looks at it as a competition. And every customer that walks through his door, he's like, I'm going to roast your ass. You don't know what's about to hit you. And I, I love that. Like, on the one hand, you're trying to give something to people, but you're also, because of how much stuff we watch, everyone is aware of cameras and lighting and acting. And so now to me, that stuff is no longer the competition. It's how to make them forget that stuff. And, and so I, I hate overly lighting things. I hate overly framing things. I want people uh, to get punched in the face because they forgot that they were watching a story. Instead, they were just, you know, empathetically experiencing the story. Uh, yeah. And that's my goal, man. I'm, I'm trying to roast your ass. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Love it. Being roasted. <laughs> Roasted you. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so today we are covering Prisoners, Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. So if you haven't seen this film, please pause it, go watch it. Um, it's streaming on Netflix, at least at the time of this recording, because uh, we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff, all the things. Yeah, all the things. And we'll touch on some of the cinematography and camera movement, as well as uh, a look at some of the story and writing. Good detective, bad detective. Um testing faith and other such stuff and things and stuff quick synopsis of the film when keller dover's daughter and her friend go missing he takes matters into his own hands as the police pursue multiple leads and the pressure mounts directed by denny villeneuve screenplay by aaron gizikowski sure cinematography by roger deakins featuring jake gyllenhaal as detective loki hugh jackman as keller dover maria bello as Grace Dover, Viola Davis as Nancy Birch, Terrence Howard as Franklin Birch, Melissa Leo as Holly Jones, and Paul Dano as Alex Jones. Your wife thinks you've been helping us. We both know that's not true. I used the lie to bury our dog last year. And helping the cops sounds better than I've been driving aimlessly in my truck because I don't know what the fuck else to do. Is that what we were doing last Saturday night? Probably. Am I a suspect? No, no, I'm only asking. I'm only asking because you assaulted the man who's now missing. I heard about that. What happened to him? Thought you had him under surveillance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're asking because you have no idea. Yeah, well, I didn't think it was something I could get away with. It's not. Yeah, well, it couldn't be that he skipped down because the asshole was guilty. Or it couldn't be that, right? Because that would mean it'd be your fault, right? Mr. Dover. Mr. Dover, what? You need to take care of yourself and your wife. That's, That's the best thing you can do right now. That little girl is going to need you when she comes home. Kids gone for more than a week. Have half as good a chance of being found. And after a month, almost none are not alive. All right? So forgive me for doing everything I can. You know what? If, it hasn't been a fucking week. You're right. Day it hasn't fucking been a week. six. Yeah, day six. And every day, she's wondering why I'm not there to fucking rescue her. Right. Do you understand that? Right. Me. Not you. Not you. Right. But me. Every day. All right. So forgive me for not going home to have a good night's rest. Now why did you look for my fucking daughter? Why is it fucking... Hey. 
Hey, 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 hey. Don't hey, follow hey, me. Hey, hey, Mr. Dole, Mr. Dole. Oh, you don't think I'm gonna let you get behind the wheel after you've been drinking, do you? I'm gonna walk. You look for my daughter. So, uh, yeah, Todd. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is your favorite Denny film, um, or at least it's up there. I've heard you talk about this film a number of times. And yet, it's about probably your greatest single nightmare. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, so, yes, it is my favorite Denny film, Easy. Um, hands down. I love, I mean, I love everything he does. I think he's what you described at the beginning of the episode. He is authentic, if nothing else, just, you know, he puts you in a, in a place and he keeps you there. Uh, but he puts you there for a reason, right? He wants you to feel something and he's not going to let go until you feel it. And that is, uh, welcomed in so many ways, even the worst ones, um, i.e. this movie. Yes, it is every parent's worst, worst nightmare. And I don't think, that you can really i don't i i know you can't put it into words the idea whether yeah so let me just talk about the film itself before i talk about like like you know the feelings and emotions behind it i think that it is it's probably one of the most perfect movies i've like i could i i if someone's described hey what's a perfect movie it's got to be this there there is no moment when i ever see the the directing i don't see the cinematography i i don't see the lighting i don't even see the written words on the page you know a lot of times like i can even if it's acted really well i can imagine a script that was memorized or a script that was that was you know like like you know worked on by the actor right and in this I, i can't it's 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 so visceral and i think it's because of what it's about you know, like um, Hugh Jackman has kids, you know, and so this is a perfect role. Someone who doesn't have kids could never play this role. I do not. I absolutely do not believe that somebody that does not have kids could play this role authentically, at least not to the to the point that someone like Hugh Jackman, you know, who has kids does. But I think that um, 90 percent of men who ha- do have kids could play this role as good as Hugh Jackman. That's the difference. That's why I think that this film is so authentic because anybody put in a situation like this would act the same. Like it's really a visceral story that is told from the point of view of someone who their only reason for being on the earth now is to protect this person who they can't protect anymore. It has been taken away from them. So not only do they feel does Hugh Jackman's character feel like he's let her down and he's let his daughter down and let his wife down and his whole family, but he has no purpose anymore. He's purposeless, which is the only reason he can do what he does to Alex. It's the only reason he can go through because he's a he's a he's a religious man. You know, we start we open the film with him saying the Our Father. He says the Our Father before you know, turning on the water, uh, when he's torturing him, it's, it's hard for him. It breaks his heart. He, it, it is, it is destroying who he used to be, but at some point that guy was already dead. 
when his daughter disappeared, that guy died. So it's almost, it just makes it easier for him. Uh, so many times in the film, I asked myself, could I do that? Would I do that? And so many times, like, it's easy to say, oh, I would, I would destroy this dude, you know, like, but we see, we see uh, Keller destroy him. And yet he still doesn't talk and he has to continue doing that. And, and so if you're asking me, would I, I, the answer is yes, I would. But at some point I got to, you know, I got to question how much more can I do to a person? Can I kill a person who I am 99.9% sure did it, but then have all of these outside factors happen? Like they're chasing this other guy who has run from them. And now I'm questioning and and there's a bloody sock that I, that is found by the police and, and it's her sock. And now do I have the right guy? You know, I don't think that he necessarily ever really questions himself, but out loud, but I think that, internally he is warring with that internally he so he he knows paul dano does it he did it he he knew alex did it he he really did and he believed that wholeheartedly but there at some point when he's beating the crap out of him and he's he's exhausted because he's beating him up so much and and with all those outside factors he had to have asked himself am i willing to kill this guy thinking that possibly there is a there could even be a slight doubt in in that that he did it he never says that but i think that that's internal at some moments and then he sloughs it aside kills himself his kills who he was a hundred percent and turns the water on you know what i mean and that's that's him trying to save not only his daughter but himself you know Mm. and it's it's an unbelievable story that is terrifying and 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 visceral and like like makes you think it leaves a scar with you that is fun to talk about it's not fun to it's fun to talk about the story it's fun to talk about would you what would you do how far would you go but yeah the story is is brutal the directing is absolutely flawless the cinematography is amazing my favorite shot of the entire film is the hammer shot from outside of the bathroom. And I think that that says a lot about the thought that Denny puts into, and not just Denny, but Roger Deakins puts into what is happening here. What we are going to do in this scene is we are going to put, we're going to put Keller and we're going to put Franklin in that bathroom with Alex. And we are going to watch from the outside this happened and they could have so easily and so many directors would have just gone into the bathroom and cut back and forth, back and forth between Alex and, and Keller and just, and it would have been great. It would have been, you know, like very visceral and in the moment and you're part of it, but there's something even creepier about being outside, not cutting, watching the entirety of that happen, thinking, Oh my God, is he going to smash his hand? You know, oh, my God. And then, he, you know, hitting the 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 sink, like scaring the crap out of you. But that's that's another amazing thing about Paul Dano and how incredible of an actor this guy is. He doesn't flinch at all. And I am sure that they practiced this. I know they did and, and everything. But 
just to trust, to have that much trust in Hugh Jackman to not hit him at any point because Hugh was in it, you know, like, like no actor ever, you know, I, Hugh Jackman is one of my favorite actors of all time after <laughs> the fountain and this film. I just cannot, I cannot with it, find anybody else that like, like does emotion the way that that guy does. And so to have him screaming in your face with a hammer and it's a real hammer. I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta, gotta be a real be. hammer. Yeah. Right. And then to swing it like that. And he doesn't flinch at all. Not his face, not his hand. He just 100% trusts. And it's, it's just incredible. It's really incredible. His delivery um, with every line, because he doesn't have very many, is is just, it's flawless. And I think that the mixing is really great too, because it's hard to hear him on purpose. Mm. You know, a lot of times you, you, you know, you mix a film so that you can hear lines, but, but Frank or Alex's lines, they're very understated they're very under the breath and maybe the car door is slamming when he says a word and you can't hear it or like you know somebody's taking a step or coughing or something like that in the over his lines and they purposefully put him beneath all of that so that we can't hear what he's saying it just makes him even that much more mysterious and seem like you know he totally did it he totally did it and you know part of us knows that he did it because we heard what he said to keller in the in the parking lot but at some point when we're seeing all this stuff, we're going on this journey with with Keller. And at some point we're thinking, wait a minute, did he do it? Or is he just like a crazy kid who's like messed up in the head? And he said this thing because this other guy is running and he's got the maze situation in the house. And like, what are, are we sure? And so I'm sitting there and I've seen this movie six times you know seven times and and every time i'm like oh would i turn the water on Hmm. would i do that you know and i mean every time the answer is yes but Hmm. i ask that question even if it's a split second i always ask that question because i'm a human being and doing that something like that to another human being is difficult no matter what it because there's there's this tiny doubt that's planted by denny you know somewhere else because of that tiny doubt it, it's hard it becomes hard now if we didn't have that doubt you know if if that guy hadn't run if we hadn't found the sock you know no i'm beating the snot out of this guy and until he talks but it's just it's a, it's brilliant it's brilliant i'll let you talk and then we can <laughs> ask questions and talk about some more thoughts. that's so. awesome i have a love hate with this one um in terms of impact that I think it's having on viewers. I hate, you know, seeing a story about kidnapping. Uh, It's just so rare. Like anything that makes people real, you know, afraid of what could happen when they turn their back. It's, it sucks because I, not that many kidnappings happen, you know, of children. Like, I guess you could talk about whatever journalists and that kind of thing. But, you know, in America, you're, far, far, far more likely to have a child under the age of 18 kidnapped by a family member than some random stranger. And I think that's also why, you know, it's so alluring to watch these stories because it is so rare. Like watching someone get into a car wreck doesn't phase us, even though that's so much more likely, you know, to, to impact our lives in one way or another. And yet we're just kind of numb to it. We've accepted those things. And kind of like Keller, he's 
arranged his life to be prepared for anything. And yet he comes into the one thing you cannot prepare for. And it's not like he's doing a bad job of parenting. Um, and I don't know, we could probably have a really healthy debate about, you know, free range parenting, quote unquote, growing up, we just called that being a kid, but, uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, he's telling his daughter, yeah, you can go as long as you take your brother, you know, and then he's doing his best to make sure, you know, this, however old she is, I don't know, four or five years old, she's, she's pretty young, um, you know, has some oversight and, and so it's just, you know, whatever, a hundred kids a year get kidnapped by strangers or something like that. And you are almost as likely to be struck by lightning. Like it's such a rare phenomenon. Like I think 30 people a year get hit by lightning and die. And so it's like, it's just a really, and yet, you know, we, we kind of watch stories like this and we really get sucked into not my kid, never my kid. Well, probably not. No, like you're, but whenever it does happen, it makes national media because it's rare. And so I don't know that watching this movie, I'm like, this is a really great gripping story. And I, I wouldn't want to change that just for, you know, argument's sake. Uh, it just bums me out that I think a lot of people out there really, you know, because that is the worst nightmare and seeing it realized in this kind of way paints the impression that this is something you need to be super vigilant about. Maybe not super, just be kind of vigilant. <laughs> like, you know, don't do anything super dumb and you'll probably be fine. As a, the thing that I love about it, though, um, again, going back to impact and takeaways, he tortures this guy. And it's, I don't love that he tortures this guy, but I love that it gets nothing. Nothing good comes out of it because torture doesn't work. <laughs> torture does not work. Like it produces unreliable intel, even when the quote unquote professionals do it. It's just not a useful uh, approach to getting, you know, uh, clues or information that's actionable. Uh, instead, often, you know, people will say whatever you want to hear. Like if you, and it sucks. Be, and why I love that in this film is because we have so many other TV shows and movies where Jack Bauer goes and, you know, breaks a guy's finger and suddenly he's singing like a canary. Like it's just so absurd and it's just not reality. And so, to your point, this movie is full of authenticity because at the same time, I really believe Keller Dover goes into that bathroom and wrecks shop on this guy because no one is listening to him. No one's believing him. And at a certain point, you know, even though it's wrong, uh, you feel like as a father, you have to take matters into your own hands, especially when something is so clearly you know, the, the solution to your, uh, to your problem. And so I don't fault Keller Dover for doing what he's doing necessarily. I just love that the takeaway, if people are actually, you know, extracting anything from that aspect is yeah, nothing good. He, he doesn't win anything per se by, by some happenstance, it leads to it dominoes into, you know, saving his daughter, but that's completely unintentional. Those are, you know, side effects, not, you know, the, the prescription. And so, yeah, I, but all that, you know, shenanigans aside, uh, I, it's such a good movie. Like, I don't know that you can watch this movie and not get just pulled in and heartbroken and terrified and confused. And it does such a great job of throwing out all these disparate threads that you're like, okay, well, that's weird, but it has nothing to do with this. And then finding a way to tie them all back together and, and suddenly it forms this beautiful, whatever rope. And you're just like, Oh, it all comes back together 
but they do a great job of like leading you astray time and time again until it's time uh, to, to loop it. It's beautiful storytelling. And I, I'm guessing this is an original screenplay. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't read that it's based on a novel or anything. And so this mm-hmm. is just a really good, I don't know how you come up with this uh, for a story. Normally this is the kind of thing that you do expect out of a book. Like, because yeah. there's so many threads, right? And there's so yeah. many interesting details and there's so many internal motivations that are happening. Uh, every character has a has a place. Like, there is no random characters in this film, whether you're talking about even the sons and daughters, right? Uh, Ralph and uh, the, the other daughter, uh, 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 the Birch daughter. Um, like, they have a relationship and they're talking even if you don't necessarily understand that it's happening, it's happening. Like she's in the bathtub on the phone with Ralph and they're talking about mm-hmm. uh, how hard it is on them. And, and so they have their own life that they're going through off screen that you only get glimpses of uh, the way everyone is handling. This is wildly different. Obviously Keller is uh, going whatever full, I'll destroy the world man on fire. Uh, but also, you know, his wife, um, uh, Grace, is just falling to pieces to the point where no one can even listen to her. Like she isn't getting out of bed and both of those seem real the way, uh, uh the birches are handling this, uh, Franklin, you know, versus Nancy, uh, they're handling it in their own way and they're struggling, but they, they're, they're doing what we think you should do, which is yeah. wait for the cops, go, go look, do what you can, you know, but wait for the cops. And then whenever they get, I love this because they, they're kind of the canary whenever Keller brings them in and gives them the opportunity. Okay. Hey, I won't stop you. And he won't, he literally leaves. They can do whatever they want. Now there he's not over their shoulder waiting to say, okay, well, well, if you're actually going to free them, then I can't let you do that. No, he literally gives them every opportunity to do the right thing. And they wage their own little war. Like, well, hold on. Now that the power really is in our hands, and it's kind of the point you were talking about, like, could I do it? They're kind of our litmus test for rationality. And they fail. It's, what do you do as a parent? Like, you have some power now. Do you not exercise the power? And it's such an interesting thing about, you know, you, you have the hammer. Do you use the hammer? Uh, and suddenly they're, they're, they're handed it. And so every character in this film has a worldview, has a perspective, has power to some degree or another. Um, and and it's it's really amazing storytelling to diffuse all these characters, give them enough space. That's all that, I think that's also why it's two and a half hours. Everyone yeah. needs time to to develop. Um, yeah, sorry, you were gonna jump in. Well I was just gonna say it's funny that you say that because I was gonna one of the things that I didn't say was that I feel like this is a classic case of there are no supporting actors. Hmm right yeah like it the idea of a great movie means that ev- there are no supporting actors everyone is a main ha- they have their own thread that we do or don't see on screen it doesn't matter they have their own history you know what happened before something happened before for everyone and we feel that for everyone in this film and it's hard it's really hard to do that i mean i i can't tell you i could probably count on you know, one or two hands, the number of films that do that really well, where it's noticeable, where I feel weight to every single person that has, you know, a presence on the screen. And I, and I do, I mean, from everyone, everyone from, uh, from Keller 
to Franklin or yeah, to Franklin, to Alex, to even the priest. I mean, like everybody has some kind of weight to them and it's and a, and a purpose and it, which is very hard to do when you have so many, I mean, <laughs> and so many names, you know, like these are all big, huge names. So it's very easy for one of them to take over the screen for Jake Schillenhall, you know, like one of the biggest actors in the world, you know, sitting next to another one of the biggest actors in the world, Hugh, Hugh Jackman, sitting next to one of the other biggest actors in the world, Viola Davis, to, to Terrence Howard, like, you know, so it's really easy to see just like a master class at work, but it yeah. really what it is, is they just disappear into the ethos of whatever this, this world is, and but they all have their purpose of being there. I do have a question then. If you feel this, this way, mm. I, I, my question to you would be, what would you do in that scenario? Like if you, if everything happened to you the way it happened to Keller, what would you do? No wrong I, answer. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think he was wrong to watch the guy. I'm probably doing that. I'm, I'm just watching though. Like realistically, if I'm being completely honest, I don't grab the guy and start wailing on him because I think that's how you lose information. And I, obviously understand the impulse <laughs> like of course oh, of course especially after watching this guy like choke the dog right you're like oh so he has violent tendencies he said this thing um you know they didn't start crying until i left he knows about them i need to gather information and i'm just gonna watch this guy yeah and and i probably stop sleeping i i probably get a tracker throw a tracker on this guy's van um, watch every single place he goes, uh, because one of those places is where those girls are. Yeah. And so it's, it's a lot of that. Um, maybe I creep around his house, uh, wherever he stays night. It's not clear to me if he actually stays with his aunt or some other place. I'm, I'm assuming he does, but, um, if so, I probably start looking around in the middle of the night, but I think if he's just hanging out there watching this guy day and night, he finds his daughter within a few days, you know, and, it's that lack of patience. It's that lack of, I mean, and again, it's understandable because you're, you're all your judgment gets clouded when you now are feeling that the ticking of the clock, because you know, time is important. You don't know where and what's happening to those girls. Um, but if you're so certain that he's involved, uh, all you have to do is just watch them long enough. Um, and it'll unfold itself. But, uh, that's the hard part of that's why I'm not a cop, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Like, then because, that, what that means to Keller is standing still. Correct. And he can't, and he cannot do that. That no. is not in his nature is not who he is. So yeah. Yeah. No. But, cool. but grabbing him and pulling him off the street also means that if this guy is the only way, only thing keeping his daughter alive, he just removed their lifeline. Mm -hmm. And so for all he knows, they're stuck in some, vacuum uh cage like imagine they're locked in some cage and mm -hmm. no longer have access to food or water well yeah. every single second that they're not getting that is the second they're closer to dying um yeah. and so yeah in a lot of ways i just think you know the irrationality kicks in but if you can hold on to your rational mind and whatever make a pros and cons list or something i don't know what you do in that <laughs> it's it's impossible it's impossible um, yeah, yeah 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 but yeah, I okay. I'll run through some cinematography stuff real quick, and then we can come back to uh, where the story kind of leads you here and there because it's it is fascinating. 
the cinematography wise very controlled right all the camera movement is super super controlled right it gives you a feeling of inevitability uh in vr we like to say we're on rails you can't move your experience and and it's like a roller coaster you do not get to determine the track has been set so every time you feel this controlled camera movement it you know feels fatalistic predetermined um and and whatever's going to happen we cannot look away we can't move we can't change its uh its destiny um similar like the scalding water bit oh man it hits i think it hits so hard for a number of reasons but uh the lack of camera movement feels like we're locked in we can't look away uh and it's kind of that cold um logic taking over that feels so much more painful uh because he's in a war with himself, Keller, but at the same time, he's committed. Uh, and it's that commitment, I think, that is represented in the camera work. Um, there is no wavering here. Um, and so everything's locked off. And it's so good because then you add in the screaming, the steam, the inescapability of it. Uh, it just feels so much worse. It just is visceral at that point. Um, yeah, it's all playing in harmony for sure. Uh, another little controlled camera move that I love, and Denny is like, I think, famous for it at this point, these slow push-ins, these creeping movements. But he does it in a way sometimes that I'm like, oh, I don't think I've seen that before. If I had, I certainly didn't notice it. Uh, and to a large extent, I didn't even notice it in this movie, which is at the beginning, the between the girls going missing and being there, right? We're at Thanksgiving, we're at the house. And we suddenly cut to the outside of the house. And, it, and normally when you, you want to reset time or establish the passage of time, you do these wide establishing shots of a location that you were just in. And now you don't know what's happened in the interim. That's how you pass time. And instead of that, we go to a, a shot of the house from the front yard of a tree. And we're slowly pushing in on the tree with the door just out of focus uh, in the background. And it's creepy. It's so good uh, because now we've done the reestablishing. We've reset the, the clock and we did it, though, in a way that is unsettling. Like, I'm sure he got for coverage sake a wide shot of the house. Like, the studio is going to want this. And this is my first big studio film. And so let's do a little bit by the book. But this is the shot I really want. Uh, and it's, it's a weird shot because there's really nothing in frame. I mean, literally, it's a tree trunk. Um, there's nothing interesting happening on the tree trunk and it's beautiful. It's weird. It's very Denny. <laughs> it's, you know, as far as uncontrolled movements, there's very little handheld, but when it does pop up and it does, uh, the contrast makes us feel really unsettled and unpredictable, right? At the beginning, we take the RV with Alex in it and it's dark. It's rainy. This is a very rainy area. Like it's raining all the time here and it sucks. Um, and it's obviously, you know, very thematic and emblematic of the story and what's going on. But whenever we take it, when we jump into that uh, RV, the camper, suddenly we're off rails, we're on just handheld and it's moving and it feels like we know, we, we don't know what's going to happen. That predictability is gone. Uh, and it just completely makes you feel like anything could happen right now. Um, same thing. I think uh, I forgot to really double check it, but I suspect it probably is happening in the, in the room with Holly at the end, whenever, uh, he takes over and they get into the little gunfight. It, it, it begins to unsettle you again. Maybe not. I would have to double check that scene, but that would be an interesting place to insert, you know, handheld camera work. But 
TBD. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't do all my homework, apparently. Uh, I made a note and then forgot to double check it. Uh, yeah. And so the other interesting thing, cinematography-wise, this is a fairly low-contrast grade, which doesn't feel obvious because uh, the blacks are pretty black. Um, and yet all the highlights are there. Like at the opening shot, of, you know, it's snow. You can see all that perfect highlight. Like uh, it's way down in the uh, uh, in the grade, um, in the exposure, um, it, the EV or whatever. Like it's it's surprisingly low contrast for the most part, except when we do crush the blacks, it's through the actual lighting of the scene. And maybe it's, you know, a silhouette against a, a brighter light. And now you can create, you know, really dark blacks in the in the frame probably still often a lot of tiny tiny detail left there one shot that i was really kind of fascinated with uh and this felt like a very deacon's thing to do uh is at the end when keller gets locked into the the, the bunker and they cover it up we go into pitch black and what i found fascinating is he breaks out his little pocket light um, once again, Keller being prepared for anything, right? She took his keys and he still has a little pocket light. He's ready for almost everything. And then, uh, he turns on the, the little, you know, keychain looking light and finds the whistle and then turns off the light. And what's interesting is that they don't use an ambient light because I mean, light is really, really fast. You don't get to see it fade on and fade off. It's either on and showing you something or it's not. And then you see nothing. And what, what I find fascinating about it is normally in order to demonstrate that he turned off the, the light, you would keep some ambient light, even just a fraction of a fraction, just so that you can see something, some kind of detail to, to let you know that he turned off the light. Whereas without that detail, he turns off the light and it looks like you just cut away because you're just going to pitch black. And so he turns it back on and then we're there again. And that's an important extra edit to, to go back in there to let us know that he is going to literally be sitting in pitch black darkness. And now we suddenly feel for him that creates an extra level of emotion. And uh, yeah, it's just this extra visceral touch of what Keller is experiencing for every second. We're not on camera with him. Um, which is not again for the rest of the movie. Like we never see him again. Um, and what so, what do you think about the um, the the waging a war on God scenario that they have that that he builds in? That's it's pretty fascinating. Um, it it takes us to some really interesting places from Keller's point of view. Like I can understand why he does what he does. Right? He has every reason to freak out with his daughter gone. Um, he hears Alex say. They didn't start crying until I left them, uh, which is super telling. Um, and then, of course, you know, like, I don't know what else you say about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, he knows. Uh, and then he sees, you know, Alex choking the dog, hearing him sing the song that his uh, daughter was singing, you know, with joy. And so you get why he's a, a man on the loose. And then you see what the detective is. Detective Loki is not actually a great detective. And so this gets into the good detective, bad detective bit. He's not very good at his job. Um, I think the good thing about him is he doesn't stop. He just keeps going. But let's list all the crappy aspects of his shoddy detective's work. And I love that the clip that we played. Keller says, 
you're the hot shot detective, uh, hot shit detective. Like uh-huh. you tell me, I got a, I, I just walked out of a liquor store and I got a liquor bottle. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing? And yet he's kind of bad with people, right? He has all these rote responses. Uh, I hear what you're saying. We're looking in the, op- I hear, sir, sir, sir. I hear what you're saying. He's very kind of bland cop. Like he's not having a very uh, intelligent conversation with this guy to let him know, here's what's happening in your case. Here's what we're doing. Um, Here's the things that I can tell you. There's certain things I can't tell you because we need to keep this, you know, in the pocket. It's, it's evidence, right? If he, whatever, if he tells a Keller that, Hey, here's the conversation that we had with Alex. Now Alex uh, gets investigated by Keller and then, Keller feeds him the information, right? And then suddenly he can make Alex look like the guilty party and kind of de facto prove his case. That's not useful for a detective. And so you ne- you do need to keep some stuff, you know, close to the chest, but he doesn't listen to anyone like virtually ever. We go see him talk to Barry's mom, right? Barry is Alex, right? Al- uh, Barry was kidnapped by these people and raised by these people. Um, and now we're going to visit Barry's mom and she's making this really good observation that RV was parked a few feet from where Barry was last seen. What do you think that means? And we see Loki chew on it for all of half a second before he's like, I'm more interested in what that means to you. You shouldn't be. <laughs> like, uh, I, you should be like, whoa, that is interesting. That's a really interesting thing you just threw at me. That that can't be a coincidence. And yet, he that's kind of all he makes of it. He's like, I don't know. Moving on. He doesn't listen to Grace, right? That someone went through the window. He just sees this hysterical mom that's drugged out. And he's looking to discount everything she's saying. Um, he doesn't listen to Keller that Alex said what he said in the parking lot. Because if he did, he is. It doesn't matter if they're putting another unit on Alex. He's watching Alex nonstop. He's doing what Keller, you know, was doing and doing it better. And he doesn't listen to, uh, he doesn't check Alex's history at all, right? Holly said, uh, Holly's the quote unquote aunt, right? Um, and she says that uh, my cousins, Alex's parents, died in a car wreck uh, when he was about six and we took over, you know, raising him after that. Oh, okay. And he just takes it on faith, right? He doesn't go look up Alex's history, uh, who is his parents, was his birth certificate say, any of this stuff. He doesn't verify any of that, right? He missed the husband's photo with the maze necklace because apparently they did go and investigate that house. He picked up the photo and looked at him. And yeah. it's like, there it is. And I, I I also love at the end that the DA forces Loki to go to Holly Jones's house. Yeah. He doesn't want to go, right? He wants to go do something else, whatever, go to the hospital and update the family or something. Um, and I love that for a number of reasons. It's very much still Loki doesn't get it. He's being forced into the right answer. Uh, but it's also nice because it keeps it from feeling too convenient. Instead, you know, make it a point of contention. And we're like, oh, no, he's going to miss it. And instead, uh, it feels a little bit more earned, like the ch- this chance could slip through our fingers, right? And so making that a little bit more contesting feels more satisfying from a storytelling perspective instead of, oh, man, I'm going to go to the aunt's house because whatever reason, it doesn't matter. Like, no, make it a question of could he, won't he? And then, of course, I love at the very end, 
that the detective is finally listening. That's our final shot. He's finally listening. And it's the whistle, right, that, he, that he's picking up on. Um, but he finally does his real job, which is to actually listen to people um, instead of just assume everyone's an idiot and he's the only smart one in the room. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the villain's motives. I love it. I That's so terrible, but I love their motivation because what you have effectively are these two devout Christians, Holly and her husband. And suddenly, you know, their, their kid dies of cancer. And what is the response? It's to go to war against God by taking kids, making people lose faith. What does that mean? What does that actually mean? It means that they want to take God's children from him the same way that God took their child. And so it's a, it's a pretty thoughtful version of crazy people doing crazy shit. There's a lot of like these movies where someone takes a kid and uh, I don't know, I guess we're supposed to just believe that, you know, a lot of terrible people exist because they exist and they do. I mean, you can look throughout history and find plenty of terrible people who do this kind of thing. No question. It, it just feels so uncommon that you, I need a story. If you're going to make a movie about it to justify it a little bit more in some way, form or fashion, because sane people don't do this. It would have to be someone really whacked out of their mind, you know, to, to watch a story like this and believe that they're capable of doing it. Um, and instead, if you want to make them sane and, and reasonable and logical to the point that they don't get caught. And that's kind of the key. Crazy people are going to get caught, right? It's like, if you're, you know, four sheets to the wind every day, you're just not going to keep an eye on your prisoner. <laughs> you're going to screw up. Something's going to happen that you're going to leave evidence behind. You're just going to get caught. You don't have the the mental faculties to, to hold on to your, your victims. And so to have someone like this, you need to give them a really interesting backstory. And they did a great job. Like, yeah, these super devout Christians finally experience, you know, the, the randomness of life and they can't account for it because they loved God so much. They were preaching. That was kind of their life. And suddenly, okay, now we have a war of faith. We're going to war. And I love it because at the beginning of the film, right? Uh, we have him, we have Keller. We, we see him praying. Like you said, that's the very first thing, the Lord's prayer, right? Our father in heaven. Um, we find him just, losing uh not losing faith but um instead oh, where's my bloody note did i delete it like a genius i think i did uh so well done wes but <laughs> he has whatever the the paraphernalia he has a necklace he has a cross in his house uh, in his car right hanging off his mirror um in every way and he never loses faith right even whenever he's torturing this guy he never loses faith and and at the end what we find is they never lost faith because at the end we have grace who literally says, Hey, he did what he had to do to find Anna. And I thank God for that. Hmm. So they won, they won the war of faith against, you know, Holly and her husband. And so the villain lost the real war at the end of the day. Uh, God kept his uh, followers or whatever, however you want to phrase that. But I love also that, they, they give us, the audience, some really great all-is-lost moments and make us lose faith. That's another thing that's happening throughout the film. Um, there's that incredible reveal of the locked trunks uh, in, in, the, in the house. God, right? And the only obvious explanation is those are bodies. 
every single one of those is a body and and that's you know how he's keeping it hidden you can't smell it you can't do anything right they're just locked in these trunks and he's got the maze on the wall right um the same maze that's on the necklace of the guy who said he murdered these kids and it's all starting to feel connected until he opens those trunks right and then it's like wait okay there's no bodies wait clothes oh god so now they're just we're never going to find them because they're buried somewhere he's just got their their evidence right and it's just this beautiful all is lost moment where we lose all faith and yet keller is right there telling his son don't don't lose faith what does he say something along the lines of uh keep your faith in your sister Woof. and then we get to the bunker cell and this is kind of a nice little all is lost moment as well because he won't get in right he says you're gonna have to shoot me bang okay well there you go congratulations uh but i think it's really important to that he has that gunshot wound because then it also puts a timer on keller living long enough to be discovered mm-hmm. now he's racing against the clock whereas you put him in there and you're like eh, maybe he can live a week you know but suddenly you put a gunshot in him she's like yeah you, maybe you got a day um yeah. and now the clock is ticking the, exca- the excavation team is leaving. They're like, hey, the ground's frozen solid. It's going to take weeks. And we know that he doesn't take weeks, that he doesn't have weeks. And yeah, it's beautiful. So yeah, I think there is this tug of war going on with faith. And it's pretty cool that the war is against God and against faith. And at the end of the day, faith wins. Uh, I think that's a really cool takeaway, even though, whatever, I'm agnostic. But like, that's, I love the through through line the throughput of the story kind of holding on to um characters believing in something even if you know a lot of the time keller is putting faith in himself um he's also still holding on to faith in his daughter faith in god to keep his daughter alive yeah i don't know what do you what what's your takeaway on uh, the faith aspect yeah well i was going to ask you faith in what right mm. because he can say the Our Father all he wants, but at some point he stopped saying it. Like he started saying the Our Father, and then when he said, forgive them their trespasses, he couldn't say that line. And so he stopped saying it. And, you know, he, he then spoke to God instead of saying the prayer. But I think that that was telling. I think that he was, I actually think he was losing faith in God. Um, and not faith in him, but just choosing to ignore his own faith in God. He had to, right? He's like, he's like, I'm going to have to put aside what I believe is right, what I know is right. Um, and so in that case, yeah, he, he kept his faith, but it was more of faith in him, like you said, in himself that he was right, that he was like, I know this guy is part of it. I know he did it and he's part of it to the point where I'm willing to damn myself by not being able to pray, by not by not doing what I know God would want me to do because I'm, I'm going to fucking find her, you know, no matter what. And it's, it's obviously when it gets his faith, he knows that what he's doing is wrong. That's why it's hard for him, you know, but he does it anyway. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I loved too like the, the war, the, I think so many, that's another reason why it hit me. I think too, because I war with that myself, you know, like I grew up Christian grew up, you know, very Catholic and I guess for lack of a better term, lost my faith a long time ago, but it was more, uh, it, it was different. And, but I think that every single day we're asked these questions of, of you believe now, 
Okay, here you go. You believe now, and then something else that you believe now. And so we have these wars. And this is, and it may, you know, it may be about something that doesn't happen a lot, but I think a lot of movies are about things that don't happen a lot. And that's okay, you mm-hmm. know, because they do happen. Yep. This has absolutely happened before. Yep. And so this is just a story of it happening, mm-hmm. having nothing to do whether or not it happens multiple times. Agreed. And so, so if that, so here's a story of something happening and somebody responding to it the only way that they know how, you know, like, I don't think he's the smartest guy alive. I don't think he's the dumbest guy alive. I think he's prepared. He's, I love how they set him, his character up as like the prepared guy. Yeah. And then his wife calls out, calls him out. Like you said, you would take care of us. You made me feel safe. And so how can he then go? Because they they put it like that, because they, you know, set him up to be this protector. How can he go and do the right thing? Sit out in front of this guy's house and just watch him. How could he how could this guy possibly do that? Yes, that is exactly what he should have done. I think that that is that's brilliant and is exactly what he should have done. But how could this character possibly sit and do nothing he could barely sit there for a couple of hours you know as soon as 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 soon as uh as he comes out of the house and he does the thing with the dog and and then they also instigate him so much the him holding the dog up paul dano's character holding the dog up hurting the dog and then singing the song was like egging him on yeah. singing <laughs> the it, batman smells rob robin yeah. like is completely egging him on so it's this is after he said the thing in the parking lot, after he sees him hurt the dog, and he's singing the song that the girls were just singing right before the last thing he heard them say say is this song. He's going to lose his mind. Obviously, he's just going to be like, I'm going to beat the crap. I'm going to beat it out of this guy. Not thinking that, yeah, you know, torture doesn't do. I also think that that he's probably one of those guys that doesn't believe that torture doesn't Oh, for sure. No, he thinks it gets results. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because there there's a certain kind of person that thinks that if I hurt you enough, you're going to tell me the right information. You're yep. going to tell me the information you know, right? Mm-hmm. And But that's the other aspect of this is that, you know, they say, you know, like, torture doesn't work. And I, I do believe that. I do believe that. But if so, if you're in a situation where you know 100% this person did it, and they just need to give you one piece of information, but I, you know they did it, like, and you're that kind of type of person, that's the answer, right? That's their answer, which is oh, I'm sure. going to hurt you until yeah. you give me this one, <laughs> tell me one word. I want one, and I know you know it, you know? And I don't think, I don't think that anybody really would do something. Well, I don't think most people would do something like that unless they knew that that person had the word that they're looking for. Yeah. But you, you mix this type of guy in this scenario with this guy who he knows did this and it's his daughter who is young and little. That's the other thing. She's not, it's not taken where she's Mm -hmm. 16, 17 years old. It's she's six and helpless and can't go across the street without her, her brother going with her. I mean, that's the other, that's the other aspect of it too. I have a seven year old daughter. And every time she she's like, can I go over to Edison's house across the street? Da, 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 da. I watch her yeah. go into the house like I it. And we yeah. live on a street that is sleepy. And, yeah. you know, but it is it's 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 a 
it's a thing. It's a real thing. And even if there's, even if it's the chance of like, okay, getting struck by lightning, we're not going to go play outside in a thunderstorm. Right. It does not matter Mm -hmm. how unlikely that scenario is. We're not going to put ourselves in that position because why, you know? So, and, and it's, it's when you said before, like, just don't do something stupid. Totally. Don't do something stupid, but allowing your, 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 your toddler to go across the street to your house. That would be stupid. No, no, it's not stupid. That's my point. Well, a toddler. Well, not toddler. You're a six year old. Okay. Yeah. That's not dumb. You know, on a sleepy town, you're sorry. I missed. I was like, yeah, Yeah, don't allow a one year old to cross the street (laughs) by itself. Um, To to allow your six year old Mm. on your sleepy, they establish really quickly their neighbors. We're going to drive. No, we're going to walk. It's right there. And they just walk there. Right. And so saying, yeah, sure. You'll go, but take your brother. And she doesn't take her brother. And then it happens like that really wasn't a stupid thing. That was they, you know, it's an, it's understood. You bring your brother with you. They miss, they didn't do that. And hence, hence the movie. Yeah. Uh, And, and, and I get that they they laid out all that, you know, just to make kind of the best case scenario of we don't even let them go whatever without their brother uh, down yes. the street. I would I mean, I grew up doing that kind of thing on my own at four or five years old. Uh, yeah. That's not like it's not crazy talk in our, our world is starting to paint this picture of if you let any child who's below the age of 50, you know, outside by themselves, let, you know, you're a terrible parent. I used to run around the yeah. woods and run around the neighborhood and whatever at, you know, a really young age. And, um, it's not because it was a different time. Like, I don't know, maybe it was the worst time actually, because there was so little ability to track and see, you know, where everyone was. And we have whatever watches and all kinds of digital, you know, uh, big brothers around us that, you know, as parents, we can take advantage or not, you know? Yeah. I just, yeah. I wouldn't have judged them for that, but they did. They went that extra step of we making sure, you know, as parents, they're not like base level, like idiots. And right. Well, cause on a film like this, you got to establish the different types of parent. Yeah. There's the type yeah. of parent was just like, I'm not going to let you out of my sight for a mm-hmm. second. Every five minutes. Where Are you okay? You know, in the other room in the house, you know, yeah. there's that type of parent. There's also the type of parent that's like, go out, play, whatever, you know, we're, we're kind of the latter, you know, like yeah. I'll let my son run up, you know, up to his friend's house, like a block and a half away, two blocks away. And, you know, or whatever. My daughter is different because she's younger, not because she's necessarily a girl, but yes, because yeah. she's a girl. But also, um, uh, so I'll like, you know, if she wants to go up to her friend's house, Simon's got to go with her, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Cool. And because he's older yeah, uh, yeah. too and, and everything. But so you, he has to, in this film, you have to like make sure that every single parent who is watching this, like doesn't say, mm. oh, what an idiot. I can't believe they did this or that or whatever. I would yeah. never do that. They're good parents. You know, they, they pay attention. He's very protective. He's very like careful. And yet this still happened. And uh, yeah. And, and so the scenario I thought was very well written for that yeah to where, I, yeah I any agree. kind of parent would look at it and say oh okay yeah they yeah. they they were careful and yet this still happened kind of thing which i yeah. think speaks to what you were saying at the beginning which is like why scare people for the sake of scaring 
I get that. I don't think that this was intended for that necessarily. And I don't think you do either. No, as I but, said, uh, it, stories happen. This happens, uh, you know, whatever. We haven't covered room, but oh yeah, real crazy stuff happens. Um, I, I, I did acknowledge that at the beginning of the episode, and I'm not downplaying that. Um, just talking like practicality, like there's a lot of impractical things that happen and it's the impractical, it's the rare stuff that does get our attention. That does make us, you know, sit up and take notice, uh, plane crashes probably, you know, we're probably never going to be in a plane crash. They happen. And if a story comes out, like I'm watching yellow jackets, it's all about a plane crash that happened, um, uh, in make believe land. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to eat it up. This is the kind of story, though, what I, the point I was just trying to make was it bums me out that a lot of parents will watch this and think it's more likely than it is. It's not that it isn't you know, possible. It's just our imaginations, our fears always you know, play bigger tricks on us than, than we appreciate. And it sucks that I think a lot of you know, parents will watch this and say, oh my God, you know, clutch their kids or whatever. Like yeah. it just becomes this little fabrication of evidence based on fictional uh, storytelling. That's a real phenomenon, like, you know, rationalizing from fictional evidence. Um, that is a very real thing that we do as human beings because everything is a story. Everything in our life, everything in our life is a story. Like our country is a story. The the fact that rule of law exists, that's just a story we tell ourselves. Traffic is a story that we tell ourselves, you know, that someone's going to obey the rule of law because there's a, you know, painting on the floor. Like that's insane, but it's a story that we tell ourselves and that we believe. Um, and I, seeing some fictional story, we do rationalize that this could happen. And of course it can. Again, I'm not denying that. My whole point was, you know, it can start to play up a little bit more in our fears than is, you know, probably reasonable. It can take up mental space more than is probably reasonable. And I'm also saying this as someone who gets in a hundred thousand fights a day, every day in my mind over stuff that will never happen. <laughs> like I, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you, if you catch me in my silence too long, I'm all of a sudden fighting someone that doesn't exist. Uh, and it's just like, well, okay, Wes, maybe stop worrying about things that aren't going to happen um, mm -hmm. and enjoy life a little bit. Um, yeah. That, that's my only whatever belabored point um, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can, you could say the same about taken mm -hmm. and stuff like that, you know, I'm but, not discounting that these are fun, entertaining movies. I've never I discounted that. Okay. I know yeah. you're not. Yeah. I'm not saying uh, you are. I'm not arguing with you. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just, I, it's interesting that you're calling it out for this movie. Well, we haven't covered Taken. <laughs> but, well, we've covered, uh, covered others that are like, yeah, really? but you know, this is the most, because of the, what you said at the beginning about the authenticity of it, this feels the most real. Oh, okay. Yeah, no yeah. part of this feels like we've covered seven, but I don't think I need to point out that you're not going to be a victim of a serial killer. That's whatever for any reason. It doesn't even matter. I don't have to fulfill that sentence. Like for <laughs> yeah, any reason, yeah, yeah. there is no reason to be afraid of that. We covered Mindhunter. Like yeah. again, I, that it's so heightened and unrealistic. Um, this is the most realistic thing we've covered. And I'm like, I feel those feelings as a, you know, fatherless man well up in me and i'm like i cannot imagine as a parent what, what watching this feels like it's probably like just terrorizing um yeah. uh, your dreams or whatever and so yeah that's i get you yeah, yeah, yeah. i get you yeah uh, yeah the realism of it um mm -hmm. 
God, there was one other thing I, I, I wanted to Sorry, throw out. I no, no, no. That's a, it's a great conversation. Uh, and I, I appreciate it because it's easy to, I guess, only hear the, the things that I'm saying, you know, that make it sound like I'm whatever, not acknowledging tragedy, even though I oh, no. repeatedly did. But I think it's something that listeners could probably tune in and say, Oh, Wes is an idiot that thinks tragedy doesn't happen in the world. Of course I do. Like, yeah. And so I, I no, appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. I think you've stated enough that obviously it's a good point. Why this happens. one and not others? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not, uh, not, you don't need to save face in that. Yeah. It was more of like, it was more of like, and you explained it oh. well. It's because it's so. Yes. And, but to your point, like talking about Keller, it's, I think what works so well about the story uh, is what you were like pointing at, which is, okay, let's tell a story about a kidnapping of two helpless little girls. And who is the worst people to throw into this situation? Like what's going to create the most drama? Let's do this survivalist, whatever home remodeler and make him one of the dads. And, and then his, his opposition is a, a music teacher and a veterinarian. Like these are very heartfelt people. Um, and now let's throw all these three, you know, characters together in the same room and say, Hey, I think I have a way to get answers. Like you're absolutely right. Keller is the very archetype of someone that we would expect to take matters into their own hands. And Nancy and Franklin are the very kind of people we would expect uh, to not. And so the temptation uh, is this domino effect of, well, we didn't think we were those people, but suddenly we're those people. And so it doesn't matter almost what kind of parent you are. You get one over, I think, into believing that you have to do whatever it takes. And if that means breaking this guy's face, scalding him, whatever, we're going to do it. And so it's just a really good uh, a slippery slope of argumentation that takes over. And it, I, I can imagine to some extent it starts to kind of write itself. Um, maybe not, but you, I can imagine if you just create the right situation with the most interesting people, a lot of these scenes are going to take over and it's just going to suddenly be, okay, well, it's not that he's uh, uh, an idiot, Alex. It's that he spent his childhood drugged up. And at a certain point, he lost his faculties. Uh, same thing with that other guy, you know, with the with, with the trunks. Like this guy, he got completely destroyed as a kid because of this traumatic thing that happened. And what do you expect him to do? He's he's trying to almost help and figure it out on his own, but he doesn't have the the faculties either. He's better off than Alex because he spent less time, but he's still just burned. And so, just a great job of finding a way to put all the worst characters together that you can to tell the most compelling story that also gives you just enough light to find the end of the tunnel. Yeah. It's just genius storytelling. And I think it starts with the the starting point of what's, what's the worst thing that can happen to the most deve- devoted dad in the world. <laughs> oh, okay. like Job. It's like, like Job. the story of Job. Right. Yeah. And then like testing your faith. I mean that you brought up an interesting point. How fun would that be to write this? Yeah. Like, to be the guy, because you're you're not physically, you know, uh, torturing somebody. You're just writing it down, and so to have that daydream of what would I do to somebody that I found that that I know took my daughter. Like, what would I do? 
and just write that on the page. I'll bet who's the writer? I, uh, Aaron, oh, Aaron. Yeah, okay. Zikowski. Yeah. I'll bet he had a lot of fun writing a lot of shit that did not make that made the cutting yeah. <laughs> didn't yeah. make the cutting room floor. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll bet there is some brutal stuff in there that either Denny said, you know, said, Hey, how about we do this or whatever? Or maybe he wrote it and then was like, no, that's too much or whatever. Like this is not what he would do, but I'll bet he wrote it from his own perspective first. And, you know, and then kind of paired it, it like molded it into what Keller, what he would think that Keller would actually do. Because if you think about it, the water is brilliant. And, and like when I, when I first saw the movie, and I saw that he did that. I was like, man, why doesn't he just start breaking bones, you know? Mm. But at some point it would kill him. And, and he said, he, he, so he calls it out. He's like, I can't hurt him anymore without killing him. And that's, it's like, okay, so what do you do to somebody that you want to hurt? But if you hurt them anymore, you'll kill them. I mean, scalding what that's, yeah, it's pretty brutal, but that there's a purpose to it. And, and it's thought out and methodical and like, uh, just, Yeah. Anyway, I bet the writing was yeah. pretty fun at some point, right? Yeah, because especially if he is a dad, right? If Aaron Gruzikowski is yeah, a dad. Yeah, I don't even know if he is or not. But Same, but if if you are, you're like, okay, I get to have my ultimate revenge fantasy right now. Yes. Um, let's go. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Dude, you take it to the nines, man. Um, <laughs> um, the only thing, I'll, uh, other thing that I'll say is, is uh, uh, just the music and how incredible mm. the music was. Because um, it had this specific, mo- it had a motif, right, that just came back over and over and over again. And the good thing about the motif was that the longer you spent in the piece of music, the main piece of music, the more uh, intense it got, right? So we could live with it for 30 seconds or a minute, and it would just kind of like gave us a moment, right? It would like tell us uh, like, okay, feel ominous right now or, or something. But then uh, I believe it was in the scene where he was, he had found her and he was driving to the emergency room. It just kept going and going and building and building and building and rising and rising and rising. Um, and, um, you know, he's bleeding. And that was such a great, such a great moment where he's just, you know, he has been to your point, he's been failing this whole film, just completely failing and so it sets this up perfectly because we're thinking is he gonna fail again first off get into the fucking house and shut your mouth don't be loud and tell her that you're there right like just get in and then get to the room get to the room and he's going slow and he's just looking around he's like looking at the picture of the father he's just like oh my god and finally he gets the girl and he's bleeding and he gets in the car and he's rushing to the hospital. And he's like, stay with me, stay with me. But you're thinking he's totally going to crash or something. He's going to fail. He's not going to get there in time because he's failed in every other thing, to your point. Right. But the music really sets that up because we hear this motif and that motif has been he's failed almost every time is when we've seen it. Like even in the chase scene where he chases that guy and he loses him. Right. He he loses the guy. He chases him and loses him. The chase, you know, <laughs> right. and That's then. Right. Um, so every time we hear it, it's like he's failing. So then we're hearing it in that in that scene at the end and in the rain. And we're thinking, oh, God, here we go. And it but just keeps rising and rising and rising and building. And it's it's just absolutely perfect. And I love that we go back to it and to different iterations of it and different different. Uh, they use different instruments to do it. 
uh, and, and for different purposes. And it's just really beautiful. But the biggest thing is Denny's use of Radiohead at the end. That Radiohead song. I missed it. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, yeah. How did you miss it? Oh, my God. Um, so we're sitting, th- we're, we're sitting there, I guess, when... I'm Is that the to excavation think. site? Were there Yeah, but it starts before the excavation site. Oh. It starts, I believe... I, I can't remember if he's sitting on... Do we do we cut from him sitting on the bed where she says thank God he did what he did or something and and then we cut to the excavation site? I think so. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it starts with him sitting there and she and she says that, right? And she says thank you or 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 I miss him or something like that about Keller. Because she said is he going to go to prison? He said probably. If you are you going to fi- or no, are you going to find him? He said probably. And then she says the, thank God he did what he did. They kept their faith, which I love that you mentioned that. I didn't even think about that, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then she says, turns to him and says, I miss him or something. And he doesn't react at all. He just, he is, is like, just looks at her. And then Radiohead starts. And it's called, the, the song is called Codex. And um, the way that it ends, the way the song ends is abrupt and in the in the shot i love that they start it before we get to the the ending scene and then we're in the ending scene and it's playing and we're thinking this is so out of place it's so like what a radiohead song okay this is telling us this is the end right this is telling Mm. us this is the end of the film it's it's obvious and um it's out of place we've never heard it before and then what happens? The excavators turn it off. It was part of the, it was just list, the music they were listening to. And so that's how it ends too, is that they just hmm. turn it off. That's how the movie ends. It just cuts to black, right? With him noticing, uh, finally listening to your point, he finally listens and he hears the the whistle. He's, he's, he's there and he's just like living and stewing in what, what happened. And, and the, the, the vibe of the song is perfect. The use of it is perfect. The placement is perfect. It's fantastic. I just wanted to call that out. That's nice. Uh, to your point, like there's a lot of car stuff in this movie. Like it's almost uh, a car movie itself. Like there's so many, and there's a couple of like car stunts that I actually think are pretty awesome. Like we're, we're used to like car flips and car explosions and whatever machine guns coming out of hubcaps or whatever. Like, and so, and so I really appreciate simpler car stunts, like the one where Keller crashes out of the hospital in his truck, right? The parking lot. Uh, and he like jumps the, the, the parking lot into traffic and just barely misses like 50 cars. I love that. I love, oh my God, the, the race to the hospital is so good. And I think it's, I love that it's almost mundane, like in the drama of trying to get to the hospital, you know, while he's bleeding out and while she's in the back seat, you know, vomiting. And we spend so much time just watching him drive. And of course, you know, like you said, the music is pumping and um, the, the audio of the traffic and the near misses, like that's heavily dramatic. And it's the kind of thing where I can imagine, you know, another storyteller might say, let's just cut to the hospital. But this movie is largely not about the big moments in terms of 
uh, the gunfight, like the gunfight was very quick. It was bang, bang, and it was over, right? The, the long moments are the moments that we really experience. And I think this is also what lends it so much authenticity um, is those big bang, bang moments that happen very quickly, but the real moments getting her to the hospital in time take a long time. It's very slow. And I love that because that's real. Like it, you want her to be immediately at the hospital getting help, but she just got injected with whatever, you know, ketamine or some other drug that she just pumped in. And he's, he knows seconds matter. Um, and feeling all those seconds in that drive is so cool, especially because we cut to the car, you know, blazing through traffic and what we mostly hear initially is actually the windshield wiper and it's thumping and it feels like her heartbeat. It feels like her pulse, like doom, 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 doom. And it's just this beautiful, like it gets our heart racing um, as he's, you know, speeding through traffic, narrowly missing cars, losing vision. And I love the framing just kind of keeps getting more and more blurry. And uh, they, they use these great shots. Uh, one of the hardest things is to, to capture like rain or snow um, on film because there's just not enough light to capture. So you usually have to go way, way heavier on rain specifically. Um, and the way they frame him in the driver's seat sometimes is by being outside the car, shoving him over to the left of the frame. And now we're watching um, traffic move by, but it also gives us more space to see the rain uh, or sleet, whatever that is that's happening on screen uh, fall into frame. Because without that, it's just going to be hitting the, the car sh windshield and there's just not enough time to let it live and breathe on, on, you know, the screen real estate. And so by just shifting the frame one, he feels much more shifted and, and squished in the frame and pressed. Right. Um, but it also allows for more of that visual communication of uh, the hazards of the driving conditions at the moment on top of him kind of starting to lose consciousness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I love oh, and that. The, and when he gets out of the car, the slip, the slip, when he slips. It's like, oh god, just. I don't know if that was scripted or if he did that. I think, know? He, yeah, I, maybe not in the script, but I can imagine on the on set, uh, you don't want it to just feel too easy. Like, yeah, uh, even, just, well, even even that, <laughs> it's been pretty hard for him up until that point. But it's still harder. You're still gonna slip. You're like, oh my mile. god, come on, man, we're there. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's God. It's a great, great movie. Yeah, I got nothing else to add, man. Yeah, man. I I, I love the questions it asks. I love your point yeah. about the um that you made about the losing your religion and yeah and your faith and 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 your faith changing and 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 either growing or dying and and uh, what that does to your life. Like that's really it's it's really heavy and it's Denny, man. Like yeah. I don't know. Like I think the guy is a genius story crafter, and you could give him any kind of story, and I feel like he'll be able to tell it on film. In, in just a way that not many people can, you know, agreed. Um, cause God. he, he dedicates the time to the characters, you know, yes. uh, at least, especially in this one, um, in this film. And is this the one, what's the one where you said they made, he made them two at the same time. Is this, this yeah, an enemy, this an enemy. Yeah. At Like right back to back or at the yeah. same time or they, something like literally it was so crunched for time, um, that two, that they, they, they were made so close together that one, both of these films, Prisoners and Enemy, both screened at the same festival, uh, Toronto. <laughs> so he had two films playing at once, uh, which never happens. Uh, but then on top of that, he didn't even see Enemy full cut until he sat down and watched it in the theater. 
Like that's how like what? on top of these. Yeah. Crazy. Well, but he was part of the cutting. Yeah. Right. It, it, it was like, he's working with the editor or whatever, but by the time like he locked the cut and then it, ha- it still has to go through whatever, um, you know, mixing, mastering, sound editing. You oh, know, I see. Yeah, yeah, thousand, yeah. And so he was still, you know, working through that, but by the time they actually finished every single, all the phases of coloring, whatever. And Hey, here's the final thing. Like with the score, like, I don't think he ever heard, saw a full cut with a score on top of enemy. And so, yeah, like he was just doing a lot all wow. at once. And yeah, he sat down to watch enemy. And that's full totality. trust in your people. Yeah, it really is. He was like, you know what? Cause they offered to let him. He, I think he, they gave it to him like uh, a few days or maybe a week, whatever, before the screening of enemy. He was like, nah, you know what? I'll see it in theater. Cause what, what can I do? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. It's done. It's out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Pretty cool. brilliant, man. I love it. So, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Oh, uh, okay. So I'm, I'm not going to recommend a film. I'm going to recommend a, a band called elbow. If you haven't listened to elbow, uh, I've recently refound them again. Um, man, one of my favorite bands about 10 years ago and, just kind of dived in guy garvey is the singer and he's an incredible lyricist and when i say when i say that i don't say it with uh any kind of any kind of like like idea that anybody is even close to this guy like that's how good i i wouldn't i would challenge any other lyricist to uh write anything more beautiful than what guy garvey does it's just uh, he has this way of saying the same thing that you already know in a much more beautiful and eloquent way and talk about random things like a guy driving a a crane a tall crane and have it be the most beautiful song you've ever heard uh so yeah i'll recommend elbow nice uh any album in specific or just check them out check the whole catalog that's a great question. I mean, you could start if you if you're into poppy stuff, you could start with Leaders of the Free World, uh, but then you could go to uh, Sleep in the Back. Um, that's probably their best one. Sleep in the Back. Nice. Yeah, I am going to recommend uh, Mystic River. If you watched Prisoners and you said, you know what, not dark enough. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mystic River is the one for you. It's got once again <laughs> uh, a banger of a cast. I mean, Sean Penn, Lawrence Fishburne, Tim Robbins, like a lot. That's just the start. Um, and it's a Clint Eastwood film from I think he had this miracle like five years where he just put out some really incredible pieces of uh work. Um, and this is one of the Mystic River is one of the hardest hitting films. Like, yeah, that'll that'll leave you that'll leave a mark. Um, so I yeah, haven't seen it. I'll go watch. Oh, well, welcome, sir. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to hell, seventh circle of hell. Oh uh, yeah. So we have another artist spotlight uh, this week. This one is Book of Perseus. It's by uh, it, it stars our our buddy Aaron Alexander. It's a it's a homage to uh book of eli so if you enjoy you know book of eli i you know think you'll appreciate this as kind of its own appreciation film almost fan fiction it's a film by brian sloyer and looks nice the the choreography though the fight choreography especially i mean 
it's so good. Like you can see Aaron just doing his thing. And so hat tip to Mr. Alexander, uh, who is, you can also see in uh, Creed 3. So check out Book of Perseus. I'll embed it in the show notes uh, so that you can, you know, just hit play. Stay tuned for next week. Uh, we're going to go way back. This will be the oldest film that we've done together. I think the only other older film you did by yourself, which was the Count of Monte Cristo, like the 1819 cut or whatever you yeah. watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to do The Great Dictator. This is Charlie Chaplin's uh, old film. Neither one of us has seen it. We have no idea what to expect, uh, but it's an interesting. I don't know. Uh, this is his first talkie. Like this is the first uh, film that Chaplin did. Uh, that was him, you know, taking advantage of sound sync. And so, yeah, I'm curious to see what that experience is like. And this might be my actual full first Char- Charlie Chaplin film. I don't think I've ever seen Modern Times or any of his other yeah, uh, big works. And so, yeah, this will be interesting. We have no idea what to expect. Uh, maybe we'll hate it. Maybe we'll appreciate it for what it was in its day. Uh, or, I don't know, maybe we'll love it. Uh, yeah, so stay tuned for that. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. It's really old. It's probably free <laughs> everywhere. It's probably already on your phone. Um, <laughs> comes it comes with the iPhone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you get the Great Dictator and YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so, YouTube does not come with an iPhone, by the way. Oh, it does not. Okay. Well, right. you remember back in the day they forced everyone to they forced downloaded a new YouTube album. Um, I do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you too. I thought you said YouTube. Oh, oh. no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, YouTube. no, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, mm. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about, kind of things you find interesting, um, yeah, happy to do it. If you want to comment on this episode um, and tell us, you know, the best way to torture someone for information, because you know what, Wes? You just don't know the right way. You just haven't been introduced <laughs> to the right tools. <laughs> Waterboarding. Yeah, that's out. That's old news. You know, what really works that's, yeah, is whispering so and crunching like Captain Crunch in someone's ear. That'll get them to break. Um, so, oh, no, yeah. it's sniffing. It's, it's, sniffing. it's sniffing. If that's you sniff at Wes, he'll tell you anything you want. <laughs> anything. Just make it stop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You can do, you can comment on this episode at thepestlepodcast.com slash prisoners. And our quote of the day is from Arthur Conan Doyle. There's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Ooh, that's, that's beautiful. It's really good. I mean, you look, I think that's, that's the downfall of detector, detector, detective Loki is he keeps seeing all these things for what they are, Right. Obviously, she's drugged out of her mind, and she probably opened that window yesterday and forgot. Oh, well, that's an obvious fact, right? That's obviously true. And so it's the ability to question what you think to be true um, and to to pursue leads that seem obvious in the first place. Uh, Yeah, I, I always like every time we do one of these kind of detective stories, I go back to either Agatha Christie or like Arthur Conan Doyle, like, I haven't read any Sherlock Holmes and from what I've read, even Arthur Conan Doyle began to hate Sherlock Holmes. Um, he tried to kill him off, but fans hated it so much that he brought him back oh. in the books. Yeah. And so I'm always interested just to see what he thinks about whatever deductive reasoning and logic and detectives. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's, it's hard. How do you, how do you second guess what you know to be true? 
Well, I mean, if you're a detective, that's what you do. Like, that's your whole reason for existing, <laughs> for doing your job is to do that exact thing, right? Yeah. Like me and you, all day. You know, we can just, oh, that's a car. You know, that car is out of gas or what? I don't know, whatever yeah. that person is is running. But the detective is supposed to say, what's that person running from or to? Mm. You know, or, you know, or has a hitch in its gate. You know, he probably has a hip pain or whatever. Like, that's your job as a detective. And he's a horrible detective, you know? <laughs> so, anyway. Nice. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Great quote, man. Thank you guys so much for joining. I, I love this episode. I love it when we can have this back and forth. And, yeah, for sure. And I see something one way, you see something another way. And we, like, find these, like, these like things that, these little gems in what each other say that yeah. that we can identify with. I love that. Love it. So hopefully you enjoyed it, too. If you have a friend that you think would like our, our podcast, please share that um, and subscribe, review us wherever you get your podcast. It all helps a lot. And join us next week. We'll be doing The Great Dictator. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.